Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Elizabeth Galbit, one of the founding partners of SoGal Ventures. SoGal Ventures is the first female-led next-generation venture capital firm. In this episode, we discuss how Elizabeth's interests led to thinking about consumer innovation, how she started a fund, the biggest arbitrage opportunity of her lifetime, and managing a two-person global fund. Without further ado, here's Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure for you being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. So I know you originally worked in healthcare. What prompted you to make this transition to become a venture capitalist and an investor? Great question. So I really grew up in healthcare all my life from the time I was a little baby. Both of my parents are doctors. And as an only child, I spent a lot of time around other doctors at pharmaceutical meetings, um, learning the ins and outs of my dad's doctor's office. After college, I went to Deloitte where I was in their strategy practice. And it was really as electronic medical records and a lot of other healthcare tech was just emerging. And we were working with a lot of big payers and provider systems and even the government to really map out what does the future of digital healthcare look like and what, you know, are those products and services that are needed? How are they chosen? How are they implemented within, you know, the very complex system of healthcare? And while I was there, it was very clear that, you know, the government's direction was we do need to implement these technologies, but the technologies were very nascent and like not necessarily ready on all fronts. Um, And to me, knowing what I knew about healthcare, just growing up, I was like, oh, no, this is going to be a problem because like people are buying these softwares that, you know, it's locking them in for the next 10 to 20 years through something called kind of like vendor lock in because it's very complex to implement these. And they just weren't designed in a way that was really conducive for better patient care or, you know, even better provider experience. And so I was pretty jaded after seeing all this. And I actually decided to try out this brand new program between Johns Hopkins and Maryland Institute College of Art. It was an MBA, MA in design. Um, So you got a full graduate degree in design, a full MBA. And my hypothesis was really, I want to learn how to design better healthcare products and services because the technologies that are being kind of created and sold right now are sometimes really missing the mark. And I care about healthcare. It's almost, you know, a quarter of GDP in the U.S. How much we spend on it with not having very good outcomes is super unsustainable and just like not right in our economy. And we need to do better. So I spent the next two years sort of thinking about, you know, what are these different spaces um, to do that in? And I ended up meeting just incredible entrepreneurs at Hopkins that really understood the intricacies of healthcare 
and we're developing super cool technologies. One in particular is a AI pathology company. So for many cancers, you actually have like a better shot at flipping a coin than getting the correct cancer diagnosis. And it actually happened in my family while I was in grad school. My dad was diagnosed with cancer after having biopsies multiple times over the course of three years. And, you know, his pathologist friends called him and were like, we actually got it wrong for three years. You've had cancer this whole time. Now it's much more advanced. And, you know, there may be a not so good outcome in your future. And so at that time, I was kind of helping the startup, but I was also going this, through this thing with my dad where I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this human heir has now created this potentially really bad outcome. And you know, he needed a more intense surgery, a more intense course of treatment, all these things that cost a lot of money to the system, right? And also just like to your own being as a person and family member of somebody impacted by cancer. And nobody wanted to invest in this startup. They're like, who invests in startups in Baltimore? Like there were very few VCs in Baltimore. There were very few healthcare enterprise VCs, right? So there were VCs that, you know, backed maybe Fitbit at the time, but there were very few that understood how do you create like a piece of software that sells into an enterprise, like a hospital system or a big lab provider. There was probably less than a dozen at the time. There's so many more now. Um, So I really made it my mission of like, I need to get this company off the ground and get it capital. I don't know how I'm going to do that. Um, So we ended up creating a student-led venture capital firm. I co-created it with a few other students at the time. And we were the first $10,000 investment into this company. And we helped them then find their seed capital They've now gone on to raise Series A, Series B. They have, you know, over 50 employees. They're sold into all the top sort of hospital systems and healthcare systems now. Um, But it really came out of this super personal kind of need and mission that like this can't happen to other people. Like it happened to my dad and I need to do something about it. And I don't know what that looks like. I had no idea what creating a venture capital firm looked like. <laughs> like I was like, oh, we're going to raise some money. We'll like, we're graduating. We'll give it to a bunch of students and then they'll like deploy the capital and we'll go off and do our own thing. And that is not at all how you run a venture capital firm. It's a, you know, a 10 to 15 year commitment at a minimum. <laughs> so the summer after I graduated, I spent a lot of time learning all the legal ins and outs of running a venture capital firm. So I kind of call myself like the accidental venture capitalist where, you know, I really saw a need for a startup to get funding and ended up being a venture capitalist in order to be the one that invested in it first. That's really fascinating. Your personal mission as well and how healthcare gets tied back to family and also wanting, believing in this company so much, and you understood just from your personal story of, of how much impact it would have on, but there really being a lack in the venture community that actually invested in healthcare technology, which is so interesting, because right now I feel like it's one of the hottest sectors. There's so many VCs, I feel like, that invest in like healthcare enterprise. Yeah, and it's so exciting to see so much movement in the space compared to where it was you know, six years ago. I remember during this whole time, I took multiple trips to New York to convince this Hopkins alumni who invests his own capital to basically lead the seed round for this company. 
And I was basically, you know, going there being like, you have to invest in this company. All the stars are aligned from, you know, all the different things I've seen in my past. And like, this is going to work, but nobody gets it yet. Like you should be the trailblazer that like gets this. And he, you know, led the first $1 million seed round. The founders actually got their $1 million um, wire the same day they graduated from undergrad. Like they walked in their cap and gown, got their $1 million wire and were off to the races to, you know, build the company. (laughs) So I was very lucky to have somebody that believed in my judgment too back then before, you know, I even had a fund to say like, I believe in this company also. And you found something really unique and maybe you're actually good at this, right? Like maybe you actually have an eye for identifying companies and you have some unique sort of experiences and skill sets. And that was really meaningful. So he actually ended up, the same investor ended up putting $50,000 into that student fund and being, you know, our largest LP in the student fund. It was a $500,000 student-led venture capital firm. We've had over a hundred students now go through it. We've made, you know, 36 investments. There's a new team raising fund two right now. It's going to be much larger than the first one. But it's been so cool also to see like, like I don't want to rag on venture capitalists, but like you can learn how to be a venture capitalist in a couple months if you really, you know, dig deep and go into it. So all these barriers that exist in the industry are kind of bullshit. And just seeing all the students be able to make, you know, great investment decisions, do great sourcing, due diligence, investment memos has been so fulfilling for me. And then they've gone on to get these great jobs after school and venture capital, Um, many of them being, you know, women and or traditionally underrepresented individuals in the industry. Yeah. And what's also really great, and I know that you talked about this a little bit earlier, but you started a venture capital fund in Baltimore, which is not, you know, a venture capital, you know, hub at Johns Hopkins. I'm from Maryland originally. I call it Stanford Talent Baltimore Prices. (laughs) There you go. There you go. But not only that, but it's also creating a legacy, right? Because you're making a new venture capital fund alma mater, Johns Hopkins, but also serving at Imagine student companies. So that's super cool. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, these companies have gone on now to raise hundreds of millions of dollars from some of the top VC shops all around. Um, So it's really incredible just to sort of see that. And I think that's where I really started at my roots, you know, of loving this process of venture capital. And it was almost like the most pristine version of venture capital, right? Like finding two to three people that have an idea, perhaps don't even have a deck yet, but believing in them because of their unique experiences in life and, you know, writing that first check without even seeing anything more than that. And there's so few investors, right, that like do that today. And I just love that that was kind of my roots as an investor being able to see this happen and to see, you know, it go from these three people to 50 people to, you know, raising this one company now has raised over $38 million from top shops. So I think that's one of the most fulfilling things of being a VC. If you're really passionate about it, seeing these companies and people grow over time. Totally. That's really impressive. So how did you make the transition? I understand you come from the enterprise healthcare space, if that's fair to say, with, of course, the consumer in mind. 
how did you make the transition or why did you make the transition to investing in like consumer products and maybe more consumer B2C businesses that are kind of more directly B2C, if that makes sense? Yeah. So through the process of raising the student fund, I met my business partner for SoGal Pocket Sun at a program at Stanford for venture capitalists. And she had been similar to how I had been creating this community in Baltimore. She had been creating this community of women and underrepresented founders at USC to really show that there are diverse voices at the table um, on both the entrepreneurial and investor side. And they need support, they need capital, and they need a lot more attention to sort of grow and create a more equitable tech ecosystem. And Pocket really has this amazing consumer background. And when the two of us came together, I already had had this thesis of the consumerization of healthcare and sort of what I would call like patient-directed, patient-led desires in healthcare because, you know, a lot of times the patient experience, especially for women, is suboptimal to terrible in a lot of different experiences. There's tons of research on how women often aren't taken seriously with their symptoms and they may go to, you know, dozens of doctors and specialists never get the lab or sort of imaging they really need because their concerns aren't being taken seriously. So they're spending enormous amounts of money and time and frustration, but not really getting to answers about their health. And anytime right, you delay any sort of diagnosis, you're having a worse outcome and you're putting more money of cost into the system and the individual. Um, so I was really interested in just like, how do you empower the individual to take control of their health. Because if we're going to sort of lower healthcare costs in the U.S. to a more sustainable rate, which is really needed because they're out of control. I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast has gotten a bill from something where they just have had their mind blown and they want to cry. <laughs> and it shouldn't be that way, right? Like we should be able to, you know, have adequate access to healthcare and feel like we have some control over our own health at prices that don't break the bank and that are transparent and that, you know, it's not this incredibly confusing system. So I really started to think around, you know, what are the pieces that will be the next generation of healthcare? And what are the different spaces in healthcare that are right for disruption? So one of our portfolio companies, for example, is EverlyWell. It's at-home lab testing. It went from seed to unicorn in three years. Um, she was the female founder that raised the largest round for a female founder in 2020. Um, and they do, you know, over 30 different types of lab testing, everything from your hormones to SDD testing to vitamin deficiency testing to food sensitivity testing. And they were actually the company that made the first FDA approved at home COVID test as well. And with that, right, like when you go and get a lab test, usually you have no idea how much it's going to cost. You like roll up to the lab, you're like, draw my blood. And you get a bill, you know, a month or two later, and often you're like gasping for air as you open that bill, <laughs> wondering what it's going to be. <laughs> or you just don't go and do it. Like a doctor will say, go get this lab. And you're like, I have work. I have other stuff to do. This is not convenient for me. And I'm also terrified on my high deductible healthcare plan, like what the bill is going to be. And I'm relatively healthy and it can wait. 
And those decisions that right, a lot of millennials and Gen Z make because it's either not convenient or we're scared about how much it costs hurt all of our health and our healthcare outcomes. So I knew, especially like, for example, in lab testing, there had to be a better way where people could figure out their own health issues, get the testing and data they need, but also have a very transparent price and not be terrified, right? Like, oh, I can get all my thyroid levels tested for $69. And I know it's only going to be $69 and that's it. (laughs) And like, you know, I can do that, right? (laughs) I can make that decision. So I think there is so much opportunity in this sort of what I call the intersection of like design, healthcare, and consumer tech. And we've invested through SoGal in so many companies in that space. That's awesome. So the position that you saw was, I guess, maybe two of the themes, if it's fair to say that you were seeing, was maybe direct-to-consumer um, options for preventative healthcare or healthcare in general, if that's fair to say. Yeah, so I think healthcare in general, and I think also what I would call, right, like patient-driven demand or consumer-driven demand, right? So it's like, for example, we have um, a company in our portfolio that helps with if you have irritable bowel syndrome, where you can get unique types of hypnotherapy and CBT-based therapy on your phone. We have another company in our portfolio where you can, if you're a woman and you're lacking you know, sexual desire, which is quite common amongst women, um, and often doctors don't have you know, a pill to prescribe you like you know, doctors can prescribe Viagra to men. We have a company that's led by this amazing OBGYN, and it's a whole app-based sort of system to help you get your sexual desire back, right? So there's all these things in health and especially things that impact women in health that as a patient or consumer, you can really take control of. And there's all these new technologies and companies coming out that are helping you have more sort of control of your health as a consumer. That's awesome. And I really appreciate those examples. When you think about some of these mega trends that are happening, how do you think about ecosystem? And do you think about if the entrepreneur kind of brings you the insight and you're kind of not looking for it, but then you're surprised and learn that it maybe you do your homework and see that it's a good opportunity? Or do you think of yourself a bit more thematic, maybe understanding mega trends and then looking at different pockets within mega trends of, okay, this could be something developing here. I think it's a little bit of both, right? I think there's things in healthcare because I've either had personal experience or I've done a lot of research or work on it where I really understand it. I think, for example, I've had a lot of loss in my life. So the area of death care and grief was always really interesting to me. So I know you've had Adele on your show at Turnita. She's like one of the founders that like I pushed really, really hard for us to get into their deal and actively chase them quite aggressively. Because if you ask any of our LPs at our LP meeting, in 2019, they were like, what is a big trend you're excited about? And I'm like, death care, death care, death care. And they're like, you are so weird. Like, (laughs) why are you saying death care is such a big opportunity, right? 
And then 2020 happens. And unfortunately, right, we have a global pandemic and now everyone's thinking about what does death mean and how do we grieve as a society and how do we take care of lost loved ones? And, you know, what does that whole death care process and technology look like? Um, spoiler alert, there's not a lot of technology in the space and we haven't really evolved our mental models around grieving in decades in the U.S. And they're, you know, really based on a lot of religiosity, which, you know, is declining rapidly in the U.S. So there is this deep consumer demand for, right, like what does grieving look like, especially if you're not religious or if you don't feel totally aligned with perhaps the religion you grew up with. So unfortunately, right, like I was right on that trend. Um, but I think now we're all a lot more open to think about it, talk about it. And it's, you know, so in our face with the pandemic. And then there's other things that like, I just didn't know that much about that. I really had my eyes opened by an entrepreneur. One of our entrepreneurs, Polly Rodriguez from Unbound, she has a sexual wellness company. And when she was in her early twenties, um, she had late stage cancer and she was given, you know, chemo and radiation, and they didn't tell her that she would lose all of her fertility by getting this, what she really needed to save her life, right, her treatment. And they didn't tell her, like, you're not going to have, you know, the same sexual desires and workings of a young 20-something-year-old. And she was left to go to basically, like, the stores on the side of the highway to, like, think about sexual wellness products that, you know, were not feeling like the safest places for women to be or at all catered to women. And she really started exploring, right? Like how big is the sexual wellness market and what, how much need there is for right women led and women designed sexual wellness products and, you know, a safe place where people felt safe to shop. And, you know, I had no idea on that market. It wasn't something that I had looked at a lot before. But for example, like the condom market is about 400 million a year. Women's sexual health products is in tune to grow to about $20 billion a year. So when you think about how little capital goes to that versus how big of a market it is and how fast it's growing, that was something, right, that I didn't know about before, but an entrepreneur brought to my attention and, you know, it really made sense. And we actually made that investment decision within, you know, the first 30 minutes of meeting Polly, um, because it was just so clear to us. Although, you know, she's had a hard time raising money from investors because a lot of male investors do not understand it or see how clear really the need and demand is there. But to us, we were like, oh my gosh, how did we not think about this before? Um, and she's an incredible entrepreneur building an incredible company. And it was just, you know, a no brainer. That's amazing. I always love hearing stories about how investors end up making the investment. And on the sexual wellness, I also, I don't think this episode actually is released, but I had a chat with Alex Fine at Dame Products. We kind of dive into a lot of, you know, problems raising capital and that maybe not understanding, you know, sexual wellness products for women since, you know, the majority of investors are male and also like the huge stigma that's been attached to it. Yeah. And there's just so many structural issues too. I'm sure Alex mentioned that, but like inability to have Facebook ads, Instagram ads, Pinterest ads, inability to use QuickBooks or, you know, payment providers or like even accounting or JustWorks, like all the things that power any other startup, they're basically not allowed to use. 
So how do you build a startup and how do you raise money when you basically have a very hard time spending any money on customer acquisition because none of the platforms let you do it? And you just have a hard time running a company because like, how do you pay your employees, get them health insurance? All the things that are normally so turnkey for a startup become these huge issues. And that's like so unfair when you think about, you know, how much money someone like Kim's or Roman, Roman just raised at a $5 billion valuation yesterday, um, has gone off of, right, like ads promoting erectile dysfunction in the blue pill. Not that like, that should be promoted and that should be part of our culture, normalizing that. Um, but women's sexual health and wellness should also be part of our culture and normalizing that. And Alex and Polly have been kind of hand in hand leading the charge in the press and media, really trying to destigmatize this and show that, you know, all these platforms, they say <laughs> all these male sexual wellness products are actually, um, they're of reproductive nature. Um, so therefore they should be allowed and women's sexual wellness products are for only pleasure or vice, which is really funny, right? When you consider who carries children, right? Like which gender actually does the main, you know, nine months of reproductive work, um, and whose bodies are permanently altered, you know, reproducing humans, but it's so backwards and so archaic. And I think, there's so many systems within healthcare that impact you as a consumer and as an individual that are so archaic and backwards. And that's what makes me so excited to invest in this space. Absolutely. Obviously, right now, it's still very much underserved when it comes to investment. But do you think that we are going to see a shift where I know Alex is doing a lawsuit right now to try to help be on the forefront of the advertising, but when, not if, but when sexual products for women actually are able to, you know, be advertised on the same ways that the, the male ones do. Alex and Polly have been beating this drum now for like five years. And as an investor, I expected, right, like my investment thesis was like, this is so absurd that if they beat the drum hard enough, it will change. And I'm right, betting with my capital that it will change so they can do things like, you know, acquire users the normal way any other consumer company or direct-to-consumer company does. I think my hypothesis was wrong there, right? They've beat the drum so, so hard. And to the point of, you know, lawsuits and hundreds upon hundreds of articles and top press like New York Times and protests. And I mean, even myself personally, I have, you know, sent decks and materials to the CEOs of a lot of these big social media companies saying how ridiculous and sort of gendered this is and, you know, how it isn't fair and a lot of it is tied up in sort of the back end of banking and rules around money and transacting money as, you know, all things in society are. So I hope it does change, right? Like I'm still betting on it changing. It should change. Um, it's not fair, but it's definitely taken longer than, you know, if you had asked me five years ago than I thought it would. Do you think once it does change, there's going to be almost like a rush from the venture community to be able to back these companies or still no because of the nature of it being overwhelmingly male, male dominant and that sort of thing. I'm just kind of interested in terms of like opportunity. I think perhaps there will be more, but I think there really is, you know, a lack of understanding about women's sexual wellness just in the male 
community in general and sort of women's sexual desires. If you're a man listening to this podcast, I think, you know, you can really differentiate yourself and perhaps make some really good investments, Um, you know, like looking into this space, but I think just supporting the women in your life, if you understand this more, like, because as a society, I think our education around sex and sexual well-being is so lacking and sort of still in many parts of America based on religion and, you know, views that are very gendered and, you know, just not healthy ways of viewing human sexuality. So I think, right, there needs to be kind of, and there is already, especially with Gen Z, where you see how Gen Z talks about gender and sort of the spectrum of sexuality and, you know, how they individually consider themselves. Um, There is this huge shift happening and it's already happened with Gen Z. And I think a lot of, you know, millennial or Gen X parents and grandparents are now almost like experiencing it through their children. So I'm super optimistic that there is going to be, you know, this big wave of just like acceptance, understanding, and sort of understanding the full range of the human experience of sexuality and gender. And so I'm really hopeful, but I think it is really driven by Gen Z. It's not driven, right, by like us as millennials or anyone else. And I think they have so much power and promise in driving that change. What's your typical check size? And like walk us through a little bit of your due diligence process when you're just analyzing opportunities, if that's all right. Yeah, of course. So our typical check size for our first fund was anywhere from a hundred to three hundred and fifty thousand, and reserving up to a million for some of our top performing companies. As we go into fund two now, we're actually going to be starting to take much more of a leadership position. There's this really unique spot in the market where you still see women and other underrepresented founders basically taking like two to three years trying to raise capital and doing it from, you know, 50 to 100 individuals in $10,000 check sizes at a time. Whereas, right, a lot of these, you know, white male founders are able to raise a one to $5 million seed round in a couple weeks by one or two investors, plus maybe a few of their friends. And that sets up the startup, right, incredibly differently on their path of, you know, what it takes for them to be successful in business and growth. Whereas one gets to like go back to work and build their team and have the resources they need, you know, a woman or underrepresented founder may be taking two to three years to try and get the resources they need, never have enough, be managing, right, 50 to 100 investors on their cap table in trying to build a business at the same rate where they're going to be evaluated by later stage investors for the same amount of traction, right? In the same amount of time. And that creates this super sort of unfair system where like you're really like your path to success looks incredibly different than other people's path to success. There's so many more obstacles and sort of twists and turns in that. So as a fund, we're really excited to have a larger fund and be able to, you know, write those one to $2 million lead seed round checks and be saying like, we'll get, you know, one or two other investors that we really like and think would be a good fit for your company to syndicate this with us. But like, we're going to be able to do a deal with you in a month or two. And like, you can get back to business and have the capital you need to actually, you know, have the best shot of growing your company and, you know, 
being a startup CEO. Um, and that's really lacking in the market right now for women and other underrepresented founders. So we're super excited to like go into that space. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I can understand how much more efficient that would be for a founder, right? Coming to SoGal and then having you folks write uh, $1 million check and then you know maybe a couple other folks that want to enter the round, but then they can go back to work and it can be a lot more efficient in terms of the fundraising process. It doesn't need to be as strung out as you described with like a 10K check here, a 10K check here. Yeah. And I mean, we faced it ourselves as VCs raising our first fund. We have 98 LPs um, and it took us over three years to raise our first $15 million fund. And we faced, you know, a lot of the same challenges. So we know firsthand what it's like and the sort of tenacity and resilience you need to be successful in that environment. And we're super excited to provide an alternative that really hasn't existed for female and other underrepresented founders. It took you three years to fundraise fund one. What were some of the biggest pushbacks when you actually talked to investors? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so many. Um, so Pocket and I started when we were 24 and 26. So first off, people were like, who the hell do you two think you are? Like at 24 and 26, thinking you should have a venture capital fund. You didn't go to, you know, Harvard or Stanford. You did not like, you know, work at Google or Facebook or Uber, or you were not an early employee anywhere. You have not built your own startup yourselves. Like who in their right mind will ever give you a dollar? And a lot of people were very, very vocal on how we had no business being in this business. Um, Thankfully, there were, right, a lot of people in the end, 98 LPs, who did see our vision and saw, you know, if for the past 30 years, women have never broken 3% of venture capital being deployed to them, if there's, you know, research reports by McKinsey and Bain and the World Bank, everyone's saying, or even first round capital, when you invest in, you know, businesses that have a woman co-founder, there's better return on investment, there's greater revenue generation, there's better employee morale, there's better, you know, employee retention. And I'm a huge data person. I love data, I follow the data. And it blows my mind that for the past 30 years, like if you look at every research report, the data only points one way. Like the more diversity you invest in and the more diverse the founding team, the better the performance, period. Why as investors, this is the one piece of data we're all choosing to ignore blows my mind. Um, You can make so much money doing this. And we've already seen that with our first fund. Recently, we just got, you know, our 2020 financials back and we're in the top using, you know, Angelus's fund performance calculator. We're in the 99th percentile of performance by investing in all women and other underrepresented diverse founding teams. And what's even more interesting is like, over half of our portfolio founders were either pregnant, recently having a baby, or managing, you know, a small toddler under the age of three during this pandemic. And all of them still grew their companies, enormous amounts during this time. The data historically has always pointed in one direction. We've seen it play out in our fund. And for being, you know, financiers who should care about data, It just blows my mind that so many people choose to ignore the data that's like right smack dab in their face. Since so many folks are ignoring the data, 
right? And not invest in women and other underrepresented groups. At the same time, that's also opportunity for you, right? In order to shine. Yeah. This is the biggest arbitrage investment opportunity of our lifetime. And, you know, that sucks to have to say that, right? That is a really tragic statement if you really drill deep down into it. And we hope we put that statement right out of business and we have to come up with a new thesis because, you know, we have an equitable tech ecosystem. But the case now is we don't. And there is a lot of opportunity. And like, we'll go and make a shit ton of money doing that. And like, we'll bring a lot of other people up with us. Like we have, even in the time it took us to fundraise for our fund, we had multiple founders that we had backed at the pre-seed or seed that went on to raise their series A, series B, series C, series D. They took, you know, some capital off the table at one of these later rounds, and then they redeployed it into our fund because we were still open in fundraising. Um, But that sort of right generational wealth creation on the founder side can happen so quickly, right? Just in a few years of building a successful company that it's so exciting to see many of them are either redeploying it into, you know, venture capital funds like ours that have, you know, aligned values, or they're actually becoming angel investors themselves and investing in other women or underrepresented founded companies, Um, And I think that's what, for me, I'm so optimistic about is even in a period of a few short years, um, that can change. Yeah, I mean, it's great that you're also building out the community, right? You're building out other investors and you're you're then giving more opportunity for women and underrepresented ethnicities, folks that come from, from those backgrounds to actually get funding, right? So that's amazing. That's super, super fun. Yeah, and we actually have a related 501c3 nonprofit called the Sogal Foundation that houses all of our educational and community building to really redefine the next generations of diverse founders and funders. And we have over 50 what we call hyperlocal chapters across the world in 22 countries across six continents. And this year, um, as people are mostly at home, we've actually embarked on the mission to train 1,000 new women and traditionally underrepresented angel investors to then redeploy them right back into these local communities. Because when you can have more angel investors, you can get more funding to these startup founders that traditionally don't have access to capital also. So if anyone's interested in learning about angel investing, we have both, you know, accredited and non-accredited investors in our training program. It's 10 modules led by Pocket and myself. We have a lot of great guest VC speakers talking about deals that they did that were good, deals they did that were bad. We have a lot of great community events and we host, you know, office hours every month for people who are just starting their investing journey to talk to us about it. And then we also host monthly what we call breaking into VC webinars where we bring another venture capitalist on and anyone who's interested in getting into the industry on the investor side can ask us, you know, any questions they want, almost like if we're sitting and having coffee with them on a Saturday to really learn like how do they break into the industry? Because across all fronts, right, we need more diverse voices at the table. Speaking about geographies, I know you touched on a few different countries. Yeah. Pocket lives in Asia, you're here in the United States. How do you make investment decisions between the two of you? How do you look at, I know that you're not geographically bound. What's that dynamic like? And how do you even like source opportunities per se? 
Yeah, so our investment thesis from the very beginning, um, our high-level investment thesis was we invest in companies that are redefining how the next generations live, work, and stay healthy. And then our sub-investment thesis, and we've had this since the beginning also, about five years ago, was what we call global-first borderless businesses. So between Pocket and myself, we had lived, studied, or worked in six countries, just the two of us. And we had grown up, you know, with lots of friends from all different places. And we knew, right, this next generation of millennials and Gen Z are very global thinkers. They think of themselves, right, as global citizens before they say, you know, I'm Chinese or I'm American. If you look at sort of statistically how people self-identify. And for us, that, you know, was this huge opportunity of looking at companies that either have, right, distributed workforces, um, right, perhaps they had development teams or different teams in different countries, perhaps they were doing manufacturing in different places, or a lot of companies, right, were selling into multiple markets very early on. And we were really uniquely positioned based on our background, as well as all of these SoGal communities we have across the world, right, in 22 countries, to really understand like how does a founder build a global business from day one? And like, what does that look like for different companies? It's not going to look the same. And you have to be very strategic about how you do this. For example, one of the companies in our portfolio function of beauty, they just hit unicorn status also from seed to unicorn in three years. They were our first investment of the fund. They create custom hair care, body care, and now skincare also. And as they were thinking about international expansion, there's so much regulation that goes on to like beauty products and the you know ingredients that are in them and what is allowed in what country and how it's regulated and, you know, the process you have to go through in order to be able to sell into each of these different countries. And again, they were a custom product. So every single product they were creating was completely unique. There were billions and billions of combinations. So like, how do they even get that through regulators that, you know, have no background in doing custom products and only right want to look at an ingredients list for a single product and either approve or deny that, right? So we work with each of our portfolio companies to really help understand, you know, their own global perspectives, right? We have lots of like, for example, immigrants um, in our portfolio also as founders, where they could see their companies going and how we could be helpful in really, you know, being their partner for global growth as they grow in a very smart way. So that's always been core to what we do, right, on a global scale. We make unanimous investment decisions. Um, Pocket and I kind of have a phrase, like, if we're not going to, you know, chase down the company founder in the rain when we can't find our shoes and chase them down the road, um, it's probably not worth investing. We don't have enough conviction yet. So we often play, you know, devil's advocate back and forth with each other as we're doing all of our research. And at the end of the day, we both have to be pounding the table that hard, um, metaphorically, right? Um, where we would chase them without shoes in the pouring rain to be like, please let us invest in your company. Um, we need you. <laughs> um, and I think that's kind of like different, right? Because that's A, requiring a huge amount of conviction, but it's also recognizing like the entrepreneurs are the superstars here, not us as VCs, right? Like VC couldn't exist without amazing founders that are busting their ass, right, 24-7 
to, you know, move mountains. And we want to, you know, believe in them and believe in what they're building and have that conviction and, you know, almost be like if they're running the marathon where they're like cheering them on like at every step of the way, whether it's a good day or bad day. So that's kind of who we are as investors and how we feel about it. And then what we have to feel right in order to get to an investment decision. That's awesome. That's really helpful. How do you think about groupthink? Have you ever been in a situation where maybe you have unbelievable conviction about a company and Pocket might not? I think that's what's really beautiful about our process is, you know, we're really willing to take all sides of an argument and from like a very logical and research-based perspective, like break everything down and find all the holes and challenge each other's assumptions. Um, We also use our community to help power some of our due diligence. So understanding that, you know, like Pocket and I, like for example, as consumers are only two people. Um, What we may like may not resonate, you know, with the general public. So for example, at Turneva was a deal we were very, very split over at first. Pocket coming from like traditional Chinese culture did not get it at all. She didn't think this is something that would really catch on. And so we actually surveyed our a community of about 500 people about what they thought of this idea. And it was incredibly surprising how open people were of like thinking like turning a loved one or a lost pet into a memorial diamond. Um, So I'm going to probably butcher the statistics, but it was like 47% of people were like, yes, this is definitely something I'd consider. And there was another about 33% of people being like, I'd like to learn more. I'm interested in learning more. And there was only like less than 20% that were like, this is really weird. I don't like this. Like, I don't want to learn anything more, you know? And I think especially right when you're investing in ideas that are really revolutionizing certain industries, especially stigmatized industries, right? Understanding a consumer's openness and often that openness is sort of staggered amongst different generations of how open a consumer may be is, you know, an important part of our due diligence process. No, that's, I love how you use your community that you've built, your 500 community to actually serve as due diligence, especially when, you know, the second actually podcast episode, it's funny, I was just catching up with him last week, Hayden Williams. He talked about how it's tougher when you don't actually use the product yourself, right? To know whether it would catch Yeah. And I think something we learned really early on from some of our earliest angel investments is like, we do have to be people who believe in these products and want to use them. I'm sure there will be companies that will make a lot of money and won't fall into that category for us. But if we're not passionate about using the product, like we want to be the startups, you know, biggest advocate and cheerleader and super user. And we want to, you know, be pushing out their products to our community. We have over a hundred thousand people in our global SoGal community and we want them to be buying all the products, right. That we like invest in. So if we don't believe in it ourselves, we're probably not going to be the best investor fit. And like, we do draw the line there. And I think like that's from learning from, you know, angel investing experiences where we didn't love the product. Like there wasn't a ton of value we could add when we didn't believe in it and we weren't authentically aligned with it. I think as an investor, as a founder, one of the most important things you can do to be successful is to be authentic to you. 
and be authentic to, you know, the things you care about, the things you believe in, the views you have in the world, um, and your unique perspective in using that, right, to either make investment decisions or make decisions as a leader of a company. So that's something we've really tried to stay true to, even though there's tons of companies, right, that could make tons of money, right? We have to say no all the time. We see now about 50 to 60,000 deals a year we're investing in 10 to 15 deals a year. Um, so we have to say no basically all the time. You're saying no a lot. <laughs> so in order for you and Pocket to make an investment or be interested in the investment, you have to almost see yourselves as a customer. Is that fair to say? Either as a customer or somebody who, you know, believes in what, like that I'd be willing to go out and sell it for them. That, right, like- We'd be willing okay. to take it to our community and say, like, we endorse, right, this product and service and entrepreneur. And we really believe it's, we talk a lot about things we invest in. A lot of the times are in the theme of what we call misunderstood problems. So things that, you know, affect women and other underrepresented individuals that often the venture community isn't investing in or isn't investing in the right solutions for because it's misunderstood from the majority. And so we want to make sure we understand it, right? And we don't want to be sort of adding to a plethora of companies that aren't, you know, really truly serving the true need of the customer. And I think that's something Right, like I got my master's in design. I also was a professor for multiple years at School of Visual Arts in New York um, for their graduate products of design program. And I think a lot in part of our subthesis is around what we call design-driven brands and companies um, about like, are you actually creating a solution <laughs> that actually meets right, the true needs and desires of a consumer or user or your customer? Right. And oftentimes startup founders don't even dig that deep to really understand if they're doing that. So something we look a lot for is like, what is actually not like design is like aesthetic design, right? Because it's definitely important, but like, does the founders actually understand who they're building for and what they're building? So a great example of this, and I know you've had them on your podcast too, is the Love Every founders, which are, you know, baby toys, and we actually were the first VC to invest in their company, the only VC in their friends and family pre-seed round. Um, and they came to us before they had launched any products. They had just kind of had the designs and idea for the Love Every Play Gym. And they basically talked about how they went across the country and they took all these prototypes into different families of different, you know, socioeconomic status, different races, different, you know, household makeups of individuals and they tested these products and all these different babies and families and kept iterating and redesigning their products as they did more and more of these in-person interviews all over the country. And that right is design research. And that's, you know, designing with your end customer in mind. And as soon as we heard that, like we were like, we're in, <laughs> like, we don't care that you don't even have a product in market yet. Like you obviously get it. You're going to build something absolutely amazing and fantastic. And the way as a founder you've gone about, right, building your products and company is aligned with how we think about, you know, how consumers should be served. So that was, again, one of those like no brainers. And I think more founders need to take the time 
and energy. And it is a very energy intensive and resource intensive experience, but to really understand their consumer and the products they're creating. It's funny because I see a lot of even people on like LinkedIn say that they're like consumer centric or like customer centric. And I feel like for companies that say they're consumer centric, you can't be much more consumer centric than that example. You actually go to potential customers, analyze what their pain points are, really try to dig in and see where it makes sense to actually build a product, if it makes sense to build a product, right? Yeah, if they were taking, I mean, like hand sewn together, you know, like cardboard taped together prototypes at first and like having people actually physically, right, engage with their prototypes, getting feedback way before they went to manufacturing and distribution and sales and just, you know, getting all that super invaluable customer experience feedback to like have that drive how they were building their products. Totally. And it also minimizes the risk too, right? You're not just going to go and just build out a product that maybe is actually possible like the wrong product, maybe has the wrong features. Yeah, and I think a lot of founders don't fully understand that. So I'd highly encourage any founders out there, like learn about design thinking, learn about the design research process, the ethnographic research process how you can design products or services in that way. I think it's super important. As a founder, it will save you a ton of time, a ton of money. It will make sure you're not kind of going down the wrong path. It's like almost that like preparation breeds success, right? Like doing the design prep work in the beginning breeds your success in the long run. And, you know, I think it's a great thing for everyone to learn too, especially if you do have a consumer-driven business. It's great points, great points. So, what is one book that inspired you professionally and one book that inspired you personally? Yeah, so one book, I'll like use the same one as professionally and personally. So I think, right, being, you know, a young woman VC in this industry that traditionally hasn't had a ton or been very acceptive to them, there's this great book called Alpha Girls that talks about kind of the history of these four different women VCs who are all kind of legends right now, but it talks about a lot of the struggles they had in their marriages, in their own personal health, at the firms they were at, all the different barriers and obstacles they faced. And I think, you know, in my own journey, I've already faced a lot of those obstacles too. And just hearing that, you know, some of these incredible rock stars that, you know, now are worth hundreds of millions of dollars and have been you know, Midas list successful investors now also faced a lot of these similar obstacles where the industry wasn't that supportive of them. And, you know, they had to be resilient and tenacious and keep going. Um, I think, you know, I read it at a time that I really needed to hear those things. I love that. You're the first guest to actually say, mention Alpha Girl. So I'm excited to add that to our list. Awesome. Yeah, it's a great book. That looks great. My final question to you is, what's the best piece of advice that you've received? I received a great piece of advice back when I, in my early days of being a consultant, right after um, school, to really be a sponge and just kind of like absorb everything around you, like almost right. If you were like a sponge in a dirty kitchen sink, you like everything's kind of adhering to you. You're soaking it all up. And I think that's really important in the startup space, right? There's so much wonderful content. There's so many wonderful people that you can build relationships with and learn from. And I think just always coming from the perspective of like, you don't know everything. 
You may know a lot about certain things and you can share those experiences, but to always be kind of soaking up information. I call myself like an information hoarder. I love hoarding information and knowledge. Like that's the one thing I like really, really hoard in life. Um, And it sometimes, you know, is just in my brain. It's sometimes also on paper or in books. But I think, you know, just being open to listening and learning is so important. And having that intellectual curiosity, I think that's one of the, you know, traits that's so important to be either a successful founder or investor or both. I love that idea of information hoarding. That's great. That's great. Well, Elizabeth, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. I really enjoyed our conversation. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Elizabeth. You can follow her on Twitter at Design for Innovate, Design number four, Inno number eight. Some of her investments include Functional Beauty, Love Every, Everly Well, and Eternova. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. (laughs) 